Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Yes, welcome to episode 75 already. Wow of Hollywood and Levine, and I am Ken Levine. Today, part two of my interview with Mark Evan Neer. If you missed part one, after you listen to this one, go back because it's very interesting. Mark, as many of you know, is a blogger, and his blog, News From Me, M-E, is one of the top blogs on the blogosphere, if that is such a word. He is also an accomplished comic book writer, sitcom writer, a cartoonist of note. He is the producer-director of the Garfield series. He wrote a book on Jack Kirby, who pretty much invented the Marvel Universe. He has also been a producer of variety shows. And in this episode, we are going to talk about Pink Lady and Jeff, which was one of the most insane variety shows you have ever heard of. And we're going to get into the world of animation and specifically the voice actors who do the cartoons. And so many people come to LA and go, man, I'd love to be one of those voices on one of those cartoon shows. How do you do it? Well, Mark is a guy who casts those shows and directs those shows. And so he is the perfect guy to talk to about how you break in, uh, what they're looking for, what they're not looking for, the mistakes people make, the do's, the don'ts, how you distinguish yourself, all of that and much more. Episode 75. Wow. Mark Evanier is my guest and it starts right now. Hollywood and the fine. You were involved in one of the great oddities of television. This was a variety show in 1979 at the time. My partner and I had a pilot at NBC, and we were vying for a spot on the, uh, uh, the mid-season lineup, and uh, our pilot got passed on, and instead they picked up a show called Pink Lady and Jeff, and we were going, what the heck is Pink Lady and Jeff? You were involved in that show. Talk a little bit about Pink Lady and Jeff. Well, okay, how many podcasts will you give me? <laughs> um, I worked for Sid and Marty Croft for, on, on all their shows. You know, you, you didn't get hired by Sid and Marty. You got adopted into the family. And the minute I clicked with them, I was going to work on every Sid and Marty Croft project that came along. So we did a pilot. We did the basic real show. We did a pilot for a, a variety show with Bobby Vinton. Okay. That, that went way over budget. And it, this is, maybe you've had one of these. It was announced as being on the schedule but never actually made it. <laughs> we did this show and and 
I actually still somebody's have a Hollywood reporter saying CBS is picking up this series mid-season, and to this day I'm waiting for them to pick it up. It's if another ten years goes by and they don't, I'm going to lose hope. And then the Crofts had a deal with NBC to do three variety pilots, and one of them had to get an order for at least six episodes. So we did one with Anson Williams and his wife, which was a really good show, uh, and it didn't go. And then the next one, we went through about four months of who's going to be the star of this. It's hard to find people to be starring variety shows because there's no more Danny Kays mm-hmm. and there's no more Carol Burnett's. No more Alan Brady's. That's right. No more Alan Brady's. Yeah. So, you know, it was like every week they call me up and they say, oh, we think uh, it's going to be Roy Clark. That was one of the people. Mm-hmm. Then it wasn't Roy Clark. Then it was the village people. And then it was going to be <laughs> Barry Manilow for about an hour <laughs> until Barry said, no, hell no, I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> and so they'd call me every so often. Now, during this time, I was working for Hanna-Barbera. And by one of those coincidences that my life abounds in, my life abounds in ridiculous coincidences, I was sharing an office in Hanna-Barbera with a guy named Will Minio, a very good cartoonist, uh, an old friend of mine who worked on me on the Tarzan comics. And he had to decorate his half of the office with pictures of these two Japanese girls that he was fans of who were unknown in America, but he really liked, he was getting buying their records down in in little Tokyo and, and posters of them. He thought they were cute. And they were called Pink Lady. And they were a created group, the way the Monkees was a case of someone deciding to have a group called the Monkees and then finding four guys to okay. be in them. Somebody had created Pink Lady and the premise was that they were like girls who were had a sisterly relationship, you know, they weren't related and they always sang in unison and they sang American songs sometimes in Japanese, sometimes in England, and they were huge in Japan. They were as big as any act as Yeah, they would sell out football stadiums. They'd get yes. 100,000 people. Yeah. So um, one day, the lady who was in charge of development for the Crofts calls me, and she says, uh, um, we've, got a, we've got our act. We, we finally found a perform- something that, NAB- that NBC will accept. NBC, in fact, gave us this. They gave us this act and said they want to make... And I said, what's the act? She said, meet me at Musso Frank's and I'll tell you. So I meet her at Musso Frank's. Never a good sign. Well, anyway. <laughs> and uh, uh, she says, uh, this is a Japanese... These two girls from Japan. And I went, oh, pink lady? And she dropped her, her spoon in the tomato soup and splattered it all over <laughs> her. She couldn't believe I'd ever heard of them because they were just happened to be decorating half of the office I just left. Right. Um, and... That was the show. The deal was... I, I, I'm not sure that whoever told you that, that you were up for the same slot was being honest with you because the deal was we were going to do six episodes and there were, and I think there were only ever... It was, would have been very difficult to do show seven because these girls were booked solid in Japan. Their managers in Japan didn't even want them coming to, to taking out the time to come to... Los Angeles and do these six hours. And they didn't speak English. No. I mean, That's they, kind of a problem. They, they spoke they spoke English kind of the way you might speak Spanish. You could maybe get along in in you know halting in, 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 and yeah, yeah, and you know, you, you could probably you know, you know you know the phrases to say where's the bathroom and stuff like right. that. But they didn't speak English. Kind of tough to write monologues and sketches, however. Well also but also the problem the t- the two problems 
The two overriding problems were that, first of all, once they had learned something, they couldn't change it. And it, we had to write the material. Did a they learn days it phonetically? Yes. They had managers <laughs> who would not let them use cue cards. We actually we found a Japanese cue card guy, and we were gonna we were gonna and they and the manager said no, they must learn it. And I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why that was. Finally, on the last show, they finally broke down and we brought up the Japanese cue cards. But uh, they would not. Um, and they would they would have to learn it phonetically. They really didn't have much idea of what they were saying. They certainly didn't know where the jokes were. And so you'd we'd write this, and it was locked. And they would commute back and forth. Yes, and that was the other to problem. Japan the every other week, problem right? was that they had to, they were booked in these stadiums on the weekends. So Friday, we would tape until their plane left, and then we'd write them out of everything else we were taping. That evening, they'd be on a plane. They'd go to Japan. They'd do the weekend there. Uh, one of them had a boyfriend who was threatening to leave her if if, if she was, didn't stay in Japan full time, and she was all always hysterical and crying about that. Uh, and they 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 play <laughs> sellout crowds in stadiums on the weekend and get on a plane and come back here. And they were sleeping through the rehearsals. They were just so exhausted. They didn't have, you know, I, I, I tell people, Carol Burnett could have not have done a, sh- a decent show. With Under those, those conditions, yes, sure. Yeah, they were, and, we, and we literally had to sometimes just, at the last minute, write them out of a script, write them, write them out of a, of a, a, a sketch. Um, so we had that problem. We had the problem that nobody wanted to be on the show. We could not get guest stars. Uh but you wound up with some big well, guest stars. Well, Did you have to pay like a fortune to get everybody? Well, do, do you know the? Did you ever hear my Larry Hagman story? No. Okay, this is a little bit of a long story, but you've got you've got time. Okay. <laughs> Fred, do the abridged we're, we're version. Doing, no, th- this is a long story. We're doing show two. We're, we're getting ready for show two. We have no guest stars. Fred Silverman, who is running NBC and at the time, NBC, mm-hmm. says. I'll get you a star. Marty Croft calls and says, I can't get anybody to do this show. And the show had not even aired yet. Nobody was, it wasn't that people were looking at the show going, I don't want to be part of that. People just heard, they don't speak English, I'm not going there. And, and part of it was that they didn't know who any of these people were. <laughs> and this was actually one of the problems. It was like we would go to, to uh, uh, some big star and say, we really want you to do this show. And he said, oh, these girls, are they fans of mine? No, they never heard of you. Well, I'm not doing the show. <laughs> that was, that was uh, Tony Randall. Uh-huh. Tony Randall backed out when he heard they didn't know who he was. Um, <laughs> so Fred Silverman calls uh, Larry Hagman for some okay. reason. He, he was doing Larry Dallas Hagman, at the time. Dallas. He was very big. Yes. In, mm-hmm. fact, in fact, he got real big. The week he did our show was the same week they filmed the, the, where he got shot. Oh, okay. So the that, Who Shot okay. JR episode. So yeah. Larry Hagman had this superstition. He would not speak on Sundays. And, and this was known by people around him. He would whistle. He had a whistle for yes and a whistle for no. I can't whistle or I would demonstrate. But you'd call him up. If you had to talk to him on Sunday, you'd call him up and he would whistle yes or whistle no. So Fred Silverman calls. This is the story the way Larry told it to me. Okay. He calls Larry Hagman at his home in Malibu and he says, uh, Larry, it's Fred Silverman. I know you don't talk on Sundays, but I needed to talk to you about this. And he tells him about the show and he says, I'd like you to do this. Now, we had Sid Caesar as a guest star on the show, recurring guest star on the show. And Larry Hagman, it turned out, had this thing. He just worshipped Sid Caesar. He thought Sid Caesar was the single most talented man who ever appeared on television. Not an odd opinion. 
and he had had fantasized as a kid being Carl Reiner or Howie Morris and being in sketches with him. So he gives the whistle. So Fred says, with, with the show, the job pays seventy five hundred dollars. That was that was what we paid for a guest star, standard our standard fee. Okay. And Fred and and Larry gives the whistle for yes, and Fred thinks it's the whistle for no, and he says, okay, we'll go to ten thousand. And Larry <laughs> gives the whistle for yes, and Fred thinks it's the whistle for no, and he says, twelve five. <laughs> and Larry gives the whistle for yes, and Fred thinks it's the whistle for no, and he says fifteen thousand. That's as high as I can go because we, we a lot of people have favored nations. I can't go over fifteen thousand. And Larry gives the whistle for yes, I'll take it. And Fred thinks he says no, no. I'll tell you what. Listen, you got a production company. I'll give you two TV movie commitments. <laughs> and. Larry Hagman says, "I'll take it." <laughs> For that, he'd break he'd break his code. So he came in and he did the shows, and he was wonderful. He was the most cooperative performer, you know, the the, the greatest performer you ever worked with in terms of being a nice guy and being cooperative. That was Larry Hagman for us. We had a a two hour tape delay in the middle of the taping because of technical problems, and he just sat there and told anecdotes the whole time. We had a great time with him. We loved him. So he did the show, and of course the show didn't last much longer. About a year later, I run into him at NBC. I'm walking down the hallway, and I hear somebody say, hey, I know that man, and I, he's, he's with a little entourage. And he comes over, and he says, you were the guy on Pink Lady, and he didn't remember my name, but I was amazed he didn't remember me at all. And he said, I love doing that. that. That sketch I did with Sid Caesar was one of the high points of my life. I, I was so happy, I don't mind I didn't get paid. I said, you didn't get what? paid? He said, no, they never paid me for this show. By that point, Fred Silverman had been kicked out of NBC, and when, his, when, when Hagman's agents went, now about those two TV movie commitments, NBC said, we don't know of any TV movie commitments. We have nothing. He'd never gotten the commitments. He'd never got paid. Wow. So I said to him, well, listen, let me call Marty Croft. We should at least get you $7,500 right. paid. And we, we, you have to get scale, right? He right. said, no, forget about it. Listen, I just signed for another you know, four seasons of Dallas. You wouldn't believe how much they're paying me. I don't need it. You know what I want? I want a video cassette of the show. You give me a video cassette of the show, I'll be happy. I said, fine. You know, what do you, where do you want it to go? He, said, he gave me his address. He said, if you lose that card, call the National Enquirer. They've got a nice guy who comes by and goes to my trash cans every night. <laughs> and he, he told me, he says... I, I, I went out, I stopped one day and I bought a lot of porn and just put it in the trash cans for him. <laughs> I thought you enjoyed that. <laughs> so they send me, the, he, we sent him a tape. He calls up Marty Cross' secretary and asks for my address so he can send me a gift, a thank you note. I said, okay, here's the address. I get this big box, a big circular box. I think it was from Abercrombie and Fitch. I had a girl, girlfriend that time. Her name was Bridget. She was one of the dancers on Pink Lady. That's where I, where I met her. So the, there were a lot of benefits to that show. <laughs> and, you know. and we opened this box, and it's a white cowboy hat, a big, fancy white cowboy hat. Okay. And there's a note saying, you're one of the good guys. Thanks, Larry. Like one of the hats that he wore in Dallas? It was, a, it was a big cowboy hat. I didn't know anything other than it's a big cowboy hat. And there's a little slip in it from Abercrombie and Fitch. It says, if this doesn't fit, bring it back, and we'll exchange it. So I don't wear hats very often. Bridget looks good in everything. So I give it to her. I said, here, you take this back. It's too big for you, obviously. But you take it back to Abercrombie & Fitch and you exchange it. It's my gift to you. Two days later, I'm sitting in my office working. And I get this call from Bridget. And he's, she's hysterical. I, thought, I think something terrible has happened. Someone has died. There's been a murder or something like that. 
She's calling from Abercrombie, payphone in Abercrombie of Fitch. It's a $1,400 hat. She goes in and says, I'd like to exchange this. And they said, fine, you have $1,400 in credit. It's like $1,422. Wow. And I think to myself, you know, he could have sent me this autograph picture. I would have been fine. <laughs> so Bridget said, what do I do? And I said, exchange it for something you want or buy a $200 item and take the rest in cash. Mm-hmm. So she bought a $200 hat. Which cowboy hat, which to me looked identical. I couldn't tell the difference. And she took $1,200 in cash, and she wanted to split it with me. But I said, now you keep it. And we, we fought over that. And so we made a deal that for the next six months, she'd keep the money. But the next six months, when we went out to dinner, she'd pay. So we'd, I had this great thrill. I, I'd go to dinner, and I'd, you know, and we'd, go to, we'd go to you know Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and they'd bring me the check. And I'd go, oh, no, no, I always make the woman pay. <laughs> and, and so the, the cute little blonde is pulling out cash out of her wallet, and she'd always act like, "Oh, why do I always have to pay? Why don't you ever pay?" And we got the weirdest looks from Waitress. Oh, I'm sure. I imagine the looks that you would get today. Yeah. Okay. Well, that didn't go. You wound up. I mean, we could spend hours yeah. on all of your various yeah. uh, uh, projects, yeah. but. You end up being involved with the Garfield TV show, yeah. and you basically coach all of the voice actors, and that's a whole interesting world, doing voice acting for cartoons. Talk a little bit about that. You mentioned earlier uh, Dawes Butler, who yes. did so many cartoons for Hanna-Barbera, and of course everybody knows Mel Blanc from Warner Brothers. But um, it's a very specialized skill, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I loved cartoon voice people. I, my, you know, my mother... You know, you know how they say that sometimes women, pregnant women, will, will listen to Mozart because they think it'll make their their unborn child a musician. Uh-huh. My mother watched Time for Beanie with Stan Freeberg and Dawes <laughs> Butler, and look what I'm doing for a living. <laughs> uh, and and I was pleased to get to know Dawes and Stan real well. Uh, I think they were the two best guys probably ever did it. Mel Blanc was damn good too. I got to direct Mel Blanc one time, wow. which was and I directed Dawes and Stan. Um, I was started writing cartoon shows uh, in the um, well. I started writing about 1981 or so. I started writing uh, for a studio called Ruby Spears. Uh, Han- I was working for Hanna Barbera. I wrote some live action shows for Hanna Barbera, and I was the head of their comic book division. I-, I was the writer of all the Yogi Bear comic books, and I was the editor of all the other ones that other people wrote. And I couldn't get into the cartoons because Joe Barbera thought I was a live-action writer. And at that particular moment, there was this strange belief, which in even-numbered years, they thought live-action writers couldn't write animation. Then in odd-numbered years, they'd say, you know, we need to up the quality of writing. Let's get some of those live-action writers in. And then this was an off year, so I I couldn't get any work at Hanna-Barbera writing cartoons. So I worked for Ruby Spears. And then I had a Barbera call me. Joe Barbera, of course, calls me later and says, why didn't you tell me I, you could write cartoons? <laughs> I said, I told you 53 times. Um, but uh, uh, I was fascinated by the voice guys, and I knew them real well. One of my proudest jobs I've ever had that didn't pay any money was that when they started putting the video, uh, the old Hannah Barbera cartoons out on uh, video cassette. this is back in the days of beta, 
they would call me and say, can you listen to some shows and tell us who the voices are? We don't have records of who these people are. Oh, we have to, interesting. We have to send them their 42-cent checks. Uh-huh. So I got some money for, you know, Hal Smith and John Stevenson and Dawes and other people by identifying who the voices were. Around the mid-'80s, I wrote a cartoon special for uh, NBC that was produced by NBC in-house. And I wrote the script, and when they got ready to start recording it, they needed to hire a voice director. And there were, at that time, a lot of really lousy voice directors around. The few good ones were all under exclusive contract. They were not available. So they put a list in front of me and said, uh, here are the voice directors who are available. Which one would you like? And I said, I can't do a worse job than any of these people. <laughs> and I said, tell you what I'll do. If you'll, if you'll let me cast the show with the people I want, I will direct, direct it for nothing. And they said, fine. And, they, and so then I, caught, I hired Dawes Butler, June Foray, Bill Scott in his first ever non-J Ward role. Yeah, he was Bullwinkle. He was Bullwinkle and mm-hmm. Dudley Do-Right, Mr. Peabody. He was a writer and producer there. Nobody ever hired him as just an actor. So I mm-hmm. hired Bill Scott. I had Frank Welker, who was the most prolific voice actor who ever lived by a wide margin. June Foray, who did Rocky. Yeah. I had uh, Peter Cullen, who was had a deep, one of these deep, he's, he's you know, one of those announcers who works all the right. time. I had yeah, Marvin. our voices, we were yeah. often mistaken yes, for one that's another. that's right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of testosterone you might be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marvin Kaplan, Howard Morris, and one or two other people in that category. Tress McNeil, I hired. And the show came out okay. I directed the voices. And thereafter, whenever I was writing a cartoon, some would say, oh, you want to direct it? You want to voice direct it? And... Uh, and I just, I'm fascinated by voice actors. I've gotten to know all the great ones and work with them. I do these panels at Comic-Con every year where I bring down some voice actors and make them read a script without any prep. <laughs> do you give them a lot of direction? I mean, no. uh, somebody like a Dawes Butler no, probably I, has it figured out. Well, I'll tell you, on the Garfield show, we did something which I think is kind of unprecedented. The actors never got the scripts in advance because I hadn't written them in advance. I had a strange deal on the Garfield show where I would just write the scripts and we'd do them. Nobody read them before I, before. I'm loving that them. deal. Yeah. Yeah, I wish and, I had and that I would deal. write them, and so I would write them the night before, and uh, my deadline was 4 a.m. At 4 a.m., I would upload them to Kinko's, FedEx Kinko's, and they'd print the scripts out. My assistant would pick them up on the way in. So there, you know, we'd get to the recording studio at 9, and me having had like four hours sleep, and the actors would walk in, and the scripts were warm. They were actually still warm <laughs> from the copy. And I would uh, have already cast them. I, I cast the shows before I wrote the scripts. In fact, on one Garfield show, one time I was writing over the weekend, I cast the shows on Friday to record on Monday and Tuesday. And, I'm, and I cast what I thought I needed, because I knew roughly the story and such. And on Saturday afternoon, I suddenly realized I need another woman. I don't have... I'm short one, one, one actress. I need somebody else for this. And I go on Facebook, and Lorraine Newman is online. And I pulled her into chat and said, you doing anything Monday? I booked her on Facebook. <laughs> so Mark Zuckerberg took 10% of her, her feet. Uh, and so then I get the actors together, and I give them the absolute minimum of direction because you can always add information, but you can't take it away. One of the actors we had on the show, the original Garfield and Friends show, was Howard Morris, 
who became like my surrogate uncle. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows, you know, Ernest T. Bass and Uncle Goopy and, and Adam Ant and all those characters he did over the years. And I discovered the less he knew about what he was doing, the better he was. Oh, because so he had, didn't overthink it? We would just, no, he would just stand in the script and say, quick, read this. And he'd go, okay, in a, in a panic. Because he was playing a nervous character who was always panicking oh, okay. anyway. And he would, he would give a, the first read. It wasn't always usable. But frequently, enough time it was, it was worth trying this. Because you could never have directed him into that performance logically or rationally or cognizantly. He just would just emphasize the weirdest words and get some weird thing going in his voice. And then if we if it didn't work, then I could tell him more. I could tell him more. We, But we used an awful lot of these, these blind first takes with him. So would you record everybody yes. in the room together? Yes. Okay, yes. that's the way we did it when I recorded for The Simpsons. Yeah. But there are other shows where they bring the, uh, I think like uh, Family Guy, for one, where they will bring the voice actors in separately yeah. and record them in different sessions. Yeah. Why do you prefer having everybody yeah. together? Well, first of all, working in sessions is called, uh, working separately is called working in splits. I don't okay. know where that term came from. Technical it's, it's, term. Yes, yeah. that's why. Okay. All right. Uh, I just like that. I like this. I like, well, for one thing, I like the actors feeding off each other. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we started doing on the Garfield show, on the first Garfield show, which was verboten at other studios, was actors overlapping. Uh, when I was working for... A lot of the cartoon studios, an amazing number of cartoon studios in the 70s were run by former film editors. Hmm. Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who I mentioned I worked for, they were right. both former film editors. They met in the editing room of Hanna-Barbera. Uh, Marvel Productions was run by a former film editor. Several studios were... And, and they would edit. They wanted every line clean. So if you were if you were writing a speech where somebody interrupted somebody else, you record it without an overlap and they would never overlap them. They would never even butt them together. So would, if you wrote a speech where I said, I'm going to go down to the, and you, you were interrupting me and say, I know you're going to the market. It would be, I'm going to go down to the pause. I know you're going to the market. And I hated that. And I tend to write people interrupting each other a lot because I find it's a way to get through exposition fast. It's it's also very natural. It's very natural, and and I liked the actor's rhythms more than the film editor's rhythms, because the film editor's rhythms are for matching it up to the animation. And since we're recording the voices first, I said, the animation's got to match the voices, not the other way around. So I started having people overlap, and I would marry these two speeches together, and I'd sometimes tell someone in, in the middle of a speech, you know, and in the middle of his speech, cut, throw in an uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. You know, throw in a little, I'm following you, I'm there. Uh-huh. And ah, there uh-huh. you are. Good, very good. So, and also like... I'm auditioning for yeah, you. Yes, good. Uh-huh. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, have, you, have you got a tape? <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, but also, the, I think the most important thing a voice director does is create the atmosphere. And we could create a very fun atmosphere. Uh, and the, our sessions were enormous fun. Uh, people loved them. People came, used to come and watch them because they were more entertaining than the show. And uh, so you get all these funny people together and everybody tells stories for a while and they get warmed up and then you go in the booth and um, everybody feeds off each other's energies. I, I had a girlfriend one time who was an actress who thought the only way you learned acting was by acting opposite people better than you. So she would go to every audition that she could go to, not be, even if she didn't want the job, 
if they said, oh, um, we're, you know, she, she, she crashed an audition once with Jack Klugman, her old friend Jack Klugman was, mm-hmm. was doing a play. She didn't want to do the play, but she wanted to do the audition. And she waited like six hours. She, she crashed the audition. She went in and said, you know, can you squeeze me in? They said, well, wait till nobody, somebody doesn't show up. She waited six hours and she got 15 minutes with Jack Klugman. And she came out thinking that was the best acting lesson I ever had, 15 minutes with Jack Lundman. Did she pay for dinner? N- never. No, never. not this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point being that that uh, I just think it works much better to have the actors all feeding off each other. And also, you know, sometimes they would coach each other. They would suggest, I, I, you know, somebody else would say, hey, listen, do you mind if I suggest a line reading to you? Or we'd sometimes swap parts. I can't tell you how many times we do, we do this. And I'd say, hey, wait a minute, what if he read this part and you read this? Why don't you guys swap and try reading it? You can't do that if you're working in splits. That's true. How do you break into cartoon voice acting? <sighs> oh, boy. Um, it's very difficult. It's more difficult now than it's ever been. In the golden days of animation, the Dawes Butler, Don Messick, Paul Freeze days, the entire talent pool for voice acting in List City was about 35 people. Today it's well over thirty five hundred. Wow! Easily. Yeah, it, by it maybe that may be a low estimate uh, because back then people who were on camera didn't do didn't do voices very often. You right. Know, Hans Conried did. That was about the only one. Mm-hmm. Gary Owens, but um, uh, you, you just had at this time uh, uh, at this at this time you have so many people that what you've got to do is cut yourself away from the herd somehow. You've got to do something. Uh, it could be a play. A lot of people have come out of improv comedy classes into voiceovers. Uh, but the, nobody's going looking for new voice people anymore. There's so many that people are deluged with it. The most likely thing to do now is to just find something else that distinguishes you. A play you could be in, and maybe somebody will see you, or a, a video, a, a YouTube video. Some people have gotten in through that. Uh, there are some very good teachers. There's some very lousy ones, too. Uh, I have a little personal campaign going on against what I call predatory voice coaches. There are a lot of people who you go to them, and you've know, and you you've got a pretty good voice. You've done radio for years. You've done, you know, and... and but if you were really bad, but you had a big checkbook, someone would they say... They would take you. They yeah. would take you. Yeah. And oh, you're say, a unique, yes. unique sounding voice. And, and I am staggered by some of the ridiculous sums of money that some people have spent. Um, there's this woman who came up to me at Comic-Con a few years ago, and she, she, was, she was so troubled, and she had been basically spending her life savings buying lessons for her daughter because she wanted her daughter to have this work. And and I think she'd spent about $30,000 wow. for nothing with a coach who I don't think ever coached anybody who had a career. Who are a couple uh, of the good coaches? Uh, Bob Bergen, Charlie Adler, Greg Berger, Bill Farmer. They're almost all people who are actively working. All four of those guys are currently, you know, Bob Bergen's the voice of Porky Pig, uh, uh, Bill Farmer's the voice of Goofy for Disney. They're all people who actually work, you know, every week. Sure. Um, uh, uh, Sue Blue, uh, uh, I don't know if she's teaching now. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm blanking now on all the names. But but if you stick with people who are actively working, those it's a good are the sign. Yeah. That's a very good sign. And 
beware anyone who wants ridiculous sums of money. Uh, the good voice teachers are not cheap, but they're not as they don't just take every nickel from you and promise you. I think the same is true for writing instructors. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's it's a little different in you know writing instructors can go home and work on their own more. I mean, writers, student writers can go off and write on their own, but they take you to these classes and these one-on-one classes that get very expensive. And the best voice teacher ever was Dawes Butler. He had a great class. He taught it in his garage, and a whole generation of people came out of that class, uh, including some of the people I just mentioned, Bob Bergen and, <laughs> and Greg Berger, and they all took that class. Nancy Cartwright was in his class. She's she, on The Simpsons. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, 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 there was a guy named Greg Burson who, who passed away, but he would be the he might be the number one voice guy today if he'd survived. Uh, he was wonderful. He took over Bugs Bunny after Mel. Wow. Um, and, he, and he did a really good Bugs Bunny. He, uh, it's just, it, it, the, the thing you've got to remember here is it's like, you know, it's, it's like asking me how do you win the lottery. Um, and that's about the odds in some cases. But at some point, you've got to do something that sets you apart from all the wannabes. You've got to get some gig someplace doing voiceovers, and you can do it on YouTube or you can do it on student films maybe. Uh, and But the most likely route is that you take a class with a good teacher and you start meeting people who are voiceover people and someone says, hey, you're good. Let me send my demo to your agent. Uh, let me send your demo to my agent. Right. Um, uh, and I gave a f- I have given a few people their first job. I, I don't cast as many shows as some people do. And given the number of people who harangue me and beg me and, 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 and court me and just come, you know, and are very phony in their approaches sometimes, I don't know how the people who have lots of jobs survive. I don't, I, when, I, when, I, when I think, you know, I'm giving away, I have two jobs to cast this month and I get, you know, 30 people who come after me trying to be my buddy and stuff. Uh-huh. And I think, you know... Bite you on their podcast and that's that, right. that kind yeah, of thing, that kind, you know. That's you never... Take them to lunch that's, afterwards. That's so, that's so desperate. And the, and, I'm, and I'm the, pathetic, aren't yes, I? Yes, yeah, oh absolutely. Oh, my God. And I can't even do voices. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. You, actually, you can. But here's the problem. You'll be realistic about this. I go into the session, a Garfield session. Now, we've got regulars on the show. We've got Frank Welker, Greg Berger, Wally Wingert... And uh, Jason Marsden are all playing recurring characters. So okay. they're in every session. Sure. There's probably very little you can do that one of those guys can't do. <laughs> I mean... That's true. Yeah. yeah. And, and then what happens is that we have, uh, we have a fellow named Neil Ross I use a lot. Yeah. Who is an incredible voice talent. Here's Neil a guy, and I were yeah. disc jockeys together at KSEA yeah. in San Diego. Yeah. 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 I tell people if they want to get into voiceover, go to Neil Ross's website, N-E-I-L-R-O-S-S.com, and listen to, to his demos. He's got the best demos in the business. He's got him on there announcing the Academy Awards and the Emmys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pretty prestigious gigs. Yeah. And he's got a lot of cartoons and promos and stuff, and he's he's just Nova, phenomenal. and he does a lot. So of what happens is he work, does yeah. some of our recurring characters. So sometimes he's in the session. So if you know, if all of a sudden, you know, you called me up and said, "I I'm going to, I will offer you a million dollars if you give me a Garfield job this week," um, and I don't take bribes, but maybe in that category, I'd think about it. 
I'd go. I'll be whistling yes, and I'd, you can go yes, uh, two million. That's right. <laughs> uh, which will make sense. That will make, and that will make a lot of sense if you cut this interview into two, three, or four podcasts. Uh, uh, you know, I'd go look at the script and go, I don't need him for that. I'll write a part in, but but uh, I just don't need anybody because you're not going to be doing a huge role, and right. you know it, it's going to be like, like, like we have. Um, uh, recurring characters, and Neil may be in the session for that, and then while he's there, he's also going to do cop number one, or you know, whatever. Uh, so we work with a very small talent pool. I work with a few people. I've given first jobs to a couple of folks who I just thought, I need a, I need a big part. I have a big part here suddenly, and I want a voice that doesn't sound like something we've had on the show before, or or it's somehow a fluky thing out of the range of of um, uh, what anybody can do. Uh, I gave the, f- the first job to a lady named Misty Lee, who is now doing voices everywhere. But I did not give her her second job. I won't give anybody their second job. Not, <laughs> that's that's my my little trick. I'll, I'll give you your first job if you're really good. I won't. Then now you got to find some stranger to hire you because you're not going to have a career based on me or just buddies or friends of yours. Right. Uh, and then you know if you get a couple other jobs, come back and I'll give you your fifth job or sixth job. Well, but, I had you know one job. I did a voice on a Simpsons that David Isaacs and I wrote, and I figure. I can retire now, right? <laughs> I, you know, I did my shot. Uh, I was on The Simpsons. Uh, you know, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I have nothing else to prove. Well, you know, it's like it's like uh, I I wrote a I wrote a uh, script one time where I needed a movie critic, so I asked Leonard Malton to do it because he's a good friend of mine. And then uh-huh. and then and then I cut the part out. I, I he didn't do it. <laughs> I just I loved, the script was running long, and I thought, oh. Well, I'm not going to be cutting you out of this no, podcast because the, the, then, then I've got like nothing. I the, got like the, the, four the, questions. The point is, I've never found another part for Leonard. Uh, you know, I mean, I've never. I would like to use him at some point because I promised him a job. Not that he needs the money, but I just feel bad about. I shouldn't have told him when I did, and uh, I had I had a couple times when I made the mistake of telling people I had a job for them when I didn't, and I and I feel bad about it. Um, but uh, you just don't find uh, the. Bob Bergen, who I mentioned earlier, this is Bob is as professional as they get. He's on dozens of shows. He teaches. He's as good a boy. And I knew him for years. I couldn't find a part for him. I didn't have a role for him. Finally, the last season of Garfield we did to date, I finally put him in two shows. Um, I just know too many good people. And, you know, tomorrow, if all of a sudden we we have a, a new villain, we need a big, raspy, evil villain, I know 50 guys who can do that. Yeah. If I can't use one of my existing players, um, I'll uh, call somebody else. And every and we do hire new people. But any case, well, Mark, thanks very much for being <laughs> on the show. <laughs> Seriously, guys, I do not want to be a cartoon no, voice. No, no, it, it, you would, you would, love, you know, what you do is when we next time we start recording, come to one of the sessions. And I'd love to do there, that. There, there are a lot of. I fun. would love to do that. Frank Welker starts just doing impressions. 
of people. And he, then he does these things. He starts, if we've got a new engineer, he starts doing vocal feedback, driving the engineer nuts. Oh, he can do he, uh, he can feedback do, sound? He can do feedback sounds. He can do, he can do like, like, sounds like his voice is cutting out in the middle of things. Uh-huh. And the engineer goes crazy. <laughs> uh, and they, you know, and, and we've got, we've had this great camaraderie that goes, I kind of cast the shows a lot by people who are going to be fun in the sessions. Um, well, Lorraine, the, New, Lorraine Newman's been doing a lot of parts for me because she just fits in so well and she just gets the jokes instantly. It isn't even, it's not something that it would be on her demo necessarily. It's just knowing how, what a good comedian she is, a good performer she is. And because that's the most important thing. It isn't about doing, that's the first thing you need to know about cartoon voices. It isn't about doing funny voices. And you'd be amazed the number of demos I get where someone's doing Homer Simpson and I don't need to cast Homer Simpson. The guy who does Homer Simpson is alive. I, he, I'm having lunch with him next week. I mean, it's it's he's around. I don't need that. And then you go and you know if it's I, I, with women's demos, everybody's demo has the same Valley Girl, the same witch, the same little my housewife. They're all doing essentially the same voices. So I listen to a lot of demos and I go, "There's nothing here I need." Uh, there's there's no part here I can't cast with my my regulars. Well, Mark, I got to have you on at least seven more times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this has been fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Anytime, sir. And there you have it, my two-part interview with Mark Evanier. Again, you can follow his blog, News From Me. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to John Wolford, Howard Hoffman, and Randy Thomas. If you have any questions, you want to get in touch with me for any reason, easily done, you can just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm also on Twitter at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood.